What's up, everybody? This is Les Edwins from The Les Edwins Show, part two of my podcast. That's right. This podcast is brought to you by SubToYou.com, S-U-B, number two, Y-O-U.com, SubToYou.com. When you need a musician to fill in for a gig because one of your band members can't make it, log on to SubToYou.com and find one. We got lots of musicians available. You can even sign up as a sub or someone to join a band. Or if you're looking for band members, we got that too. That's right. You can even add your own personal profile picture with you on your instrument for just $1.99. That's right, just $1.99. That's right. So get on subtoyou.com when your band member can't make a gig and Google find one right there, baby. All right, let's get back where we left off last time. I left off with my family uh, having our van repossessed in San Francisco and sleeping under some steps and, you know, getting in a motel for a year, and we finally got a house in Daly City, California. Now, it was kind of nice, man, to be in Daly City because it was a neighborhood, and we was away from the city and all the ruckus that goes on city life, you know. So we was in the suburbs, and it was kind of nice. You know, went to school at Ceremony High School, and uh, that was cool. Made a lot of friends, and, you know, we used to go to house parties and stuff like that, you know, sometimes on the weekend. But for the most part... We were down at the wharf, Fisherman's Wharf for San Francisco, working our street thing show. And I tell you, like I said before, it was really popular, man. I mean, we, we drew big, big crowds, man. That's right. Big crowds down there in San Francisco. So it was really fun. You know, it was a percussion act. You know, we, I, you know, we had the drums going where I played drums. And Ron played percussion with his maracas. My dad had the cowbell. And Jeff and Myron were doing dance steps. So it was a really cool show, you know, that we called the street thing. You know, so it was really, you know, fun in the beginning, you know, you know, those first few years. We was down there for about eight years, but, you know, the first few years was kind of fun. But then it got to be, you know, because we were becoming, you know, teenagers and stuff like that, you know. And, you know, we wanted to do a little bit more than just perform on the street. But during that time, we've had a lot of interesting and exciting things going, you know. You know, we had uh, met a lot of people, you know. I mean, Robin Williams was even out there on the street at that time. Shields and Yarns, you know, they were the mimes. Grimes, you know, he was the human jukebox. All kinds of great musicians, you know. We had Jerry the Magician. Man, all kinds of really cool things, you know, was going on around the time. But, you know, at the house, my dad had put together a four-track studio, you know. So we started, you know, getting into, you know, songwriting and stuff. Mostly my dad was doing a lot of recording, you know. He, he spent a lot of time there, you know. And then gradually, you know, he started involving me and my brothers in some of the songs he was writing. And then from there, we actually started dibbling and dabbling and, you know, trying to write tunes and stuff like that. And, you know, but like I say, we only had a four track, you know, we didn't have all the bells and whistles and stuff like that. So we got the best sound that we get. Actually, the Street Thing album that we have out, it was recorded in that garage in 1974, you know, so, uh, there's a lot of history behind that album in itself, you know, how it was even created. It was created in a garage in Daly City in the house, you know, the whole thing, you know. So that was called the street thing, you know. But like I say, you know, we, we didn't have the sound quality, you know, that the big studios were giving you. So, you know, when me and my brothers write songs and stuff like that, you know, we would write the song in the studio and then we say, hey, you know what, you know, maybe we need to take these tracks, you know, and – uh and go into another studio, you know, and just pay some studio time, you know. So when we write a song, we just go into the studio and, and uh, 
take it on in there and pay. It was like $180 to $200 an hour. Now, I used to sit there and trip on that because I was like saying, man, you know, these these guys got all this equipment in here, and we're in here recording, spending $180 an hour, and we're coming out with a dry mix. I mean, it's like these engineers would just sit back, you know, and let you go do your thing and record and stuff like that, you know, and let you burn up the clock and stuff like that. They didn't give you none of the bells and whistles. They didn't give you no compression or no reverbs or, you know, or no nothing. I mean, they had these big Neve boards, man. I mean, a million-dollar mixing board, and you can't come up with a better sound than that. You're getting out of there, man. But that was the rip-off thing back then, man, these studios, man. They get you in there, man. You know, they wouldn't treat a record company like that. But we get in there, man. We be like asking the engineer. We say, hey, man, what, what, what do you think? How's that sound? Oh, well, that, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds good. Just sitting there. He ain't doing nothing. He ain't saying, uh, you know, uh, I think you should put some compression on this or, you know, or some reverb or some flange or some delay or some or whatever, man. I mean, they would just sit there and they would just like, oh, that, that sounds good. Oh, yeah, it really sounds good. That, that. And, you know, and we come out of that studio, man, because, like, you look at the clock and you're saying, God, dog, we've already eaten up three hours of the block time that we had booked. So it was really a drag, man, going to studios back then in the 80s, man, because you'd be listening to these records on the radio and saying, well, well why in the hell are we, are we not getting that kind of sound? And we're going to these studios. And some of these studios were studios that, you know, a lot of the musicians went, you know, from name bands, you know, whether they was in there with their own band or whether they was in there doing a solo thing. And it always came out with a big, fat mix, man. As soon as we go up in there and spend 180 $200 an hour, man. We got some dry, you know, non-compressed mix with nothing, no kind of sweeteners and nothing on it. It was just dry, you know. So that was kind of a drag, you know, in the, in the, the area of writing music and just trying to get your music out there, you know, uh, you know, to record companies because that's what we were trying to do it back in those days. We were writing songs and trying to see if we can get, you know, some songs picked up by the major labels, you know. So anyways, you know, in between writing songs and, you know, going down to the wharf, you know, me and my brothers, you know, we was at the wharf for like eight years, man, you know. And I tell you, man, let me tell you something about the wharf, man, you know. Being that we were young, you know, and we didn't have no control on a lot of things, my dad, <laughs> and I can tell you right now, my dad was the most coolest cat, man, that I know, man. Generous kind of a dude, really, you know. But the only thing about it was he was, you know, a lot of times generous to him, himself. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, he was generous to himself. What I mean by that is that we'd be down at the wharf playing and stuff like that. Now, remember, we're kids, you know, and kids get hungry and things like that, right? Now, see, Pops, he would, you know, if he wanted a hamburger, he'd go get a hamburger. If he wanted a coffee, he'd go get a coffee. If he wanted a, you know, now Pops like to, get, you know, drink his oil, you know, so... If he liked that Jim Beam, man. I mean, he want, he liked that stuff straight. No ice, no nothing, not watered down, no nothing. He wanted that stuff straight, man. But, you know, he liked to have his taste. You know, okay, that's cool. He liked to have his taste. Sometimes he got a little more carried away with his taste than, than we would have liked. But when he wanted to get his taste, he'd go get his taste. Okay? So then here we are. We're sitting up looking at all this stuff, man. We're looking at it and say, wow, you know, Pops always got himself a hamburger or got himself, you know, a sandwich or got himself some Jim Beam or some coffee or whatever the case is. So we start saying, hey, Pops, can we get a hamburger 
And Pop be like, oh, oh son, we, son, oh, son, we didn't make enough money today. Just, just wait a little while. You know, and that would go on and go on and go on, man. And I was like, dog, man, you know, <laughs> when you want a sandwich, you go get you one. You know, you don't put yourself through all that. You know, and remember, we were kids, but we were smart kids. And I can tell you right now, after a while, after a good year of that, now I'm not saying that he wouldn't, wouldn't get us a sandwich at certain times, but it never came quick as his. You know what I'm saying? We had to wait. It was always we didn't make enough money, but as soon as he wants some Jim Beam or he wants something like that, he wants a burger, he got get up and, you know, gone. So, uh, you know, so I used to watch my brothers go around when we were playing at the wharf. And, you know, during our shows, oftentimes they would walk around with the kitty. You know, that's the tip bucket or a hat or something like that. And I used to watch them while I was playing drums because while they were doing it, I was still playing drums, you know, but I was watching everything. So one day I said, you know, forget this whole asking stuff, man. Forget this asking thing. When we stopped the music and since we had such large crowds, I would jump off the drums and go grab the kitty box and I would walk around with the kitty box. And I said, I'll fix this stuff. So what I would do is I would go around with the kitty box, but then I would get lost in the crowd, you know what I'm saying, while I'm walking around. And I would dig in that kitty box and grab a bunch of change, throw it in my pocket, grab me a couple of fives, a 10 or something like that, throw in my pocket, and bring it back. And I would sit on the ground. And then I told my brothers, I said, man, you better get hip to this act, man, right here, man. This is what you got to do, man. Forget about all the asking. You want to get a hamburger? When you're walking around with that kitty bucket, man, you better get you some stash for yourself and put it in your pocket, man. You ain't got to ask no more. And they start doing it. So it got really funny because after a while, my dad would be looking at the kitty box when we come back and put it on the ground. He said, man, is that all you got? Is that all you got out of that crowd? Yeah, yeah, Dad, he wasn't really giving much money. Yeah, well, that's all we got. Man, our pockets would be wadded, man. <laughs> I'm talking about, you're talking about wadded. And I can tell you right now, when I wanted a hamburger, I went and got a hamburger. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So that, that, that's one of the fun, funny moments of the war. Another funny moment was, like I told you, my dad liked his oil. I, I got I to be honest about it, man. Pops, you know. Drank it more than I would like him to drink, you know. I, you know, he 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 uh, sometimes overdid it. So one day, you know, we had this Buick station wagon, man. This thing, you know, and we had all of our drums and stuff and equipment in there, and 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 you know, me and my brothers and my dad. And like I said, man, I always hated. I mean, hated taking a ride with pops, man. When he had that oil on him, man. I'm telling you, when my dad had the oil on him. It was just one scary moment. Believe me, my dad would drive so fast, and I would be scared to the bone. I'm sure my brothers were scared just like I was, man, because he was like flying down the road, man. I'm talking about flying. We get up on a freeway one day, and my dad's doing like 90, and we're driving down freeway uh, 280. Going back to Daly City. He's doing about 90 miles an hour, and we're sitting in the back of the, you know, the, the uh, car, and I'm up in the front seat. My brother's in the back. And I'm looking ahead, and I'm saying, I'm looking ahead, and I'm seeing these cars slow down. And my dad's still doing like 90. I'm like saying, 
Oh God, please, I, please let him know that the cars are coming to a stop. Please let him know that the cars are coming to a stop. Somehow, he would stop. I mean, somehow. I don't know. I think my dad was a function, functional drinker. <laughs> you know, because I'm telling you right now, he scared the you know what out of me and my brothers. You know, I'm serious. And he would drive crazy, man. It's like he would be driving crazy. So one day, like I said, he's driving all fast and crazy and stuff like that. So we get a little opening in the traffic, and there he goes. Vroom, he's flying. And we're scared. And we're like, oh, man, please let us out of this car. All of a sudden, he pulls over on a freeway overpass on the shoulder. He jumps out of the car, runs over to the shoulder, I'm sorry, the overpass. And he's hanging over the railing, throwing up. I'm like, oh, man. So we're looking at him from the car, and he's over there throwing up. So I said, man, I better get out and, and make sure he's okay. Man. Something happened to him. You know, he fall over the railing or something like that. He's all bent over throwing up. And, and as soon as I get over there, I'm looking at him and throwing up. And all of a sudden, boom, his dentures fell out. I mean, his teeth fell out while he was vomiting all the way down to the, the bottom to the next road down there. And I'm like, and I'm trying to keep from laughing, you know, because I didn't want, you know, I know Pops would probably get mad. So I'm trying not to laugh. I'm trying, oh, oh Dad, Dad, you okay? You okay? And he's like, get a good my teeth, son. Go get my, my teeth. You know how people talk when they ain't got no upper denture, you know, and it like sucks in their lip, you know, up the top, you know, look like a like a rubber band flapping when they're talking. He's trying to talk to me about getting his teeth. And I'm thinking like, well, how am I going to get your teeth? Well, you want me to walk down the freeway to the next exit and all the way down the street down to the gate? I saw his teeth, but I couldn't get them because we were standing up on overpass. But he's over there talking. Son, you, can't, you see my teeth? Get my teeth. Man, I'm cracking up. So we walk back to the car because now we got to drive, get off the exit and go down here to retrieve his teeth. And, and me and my brothers, because they was able to see while he was talking in, in the car, they can see that he don't have no teeth. So we're, we're all trying to hold our laughter because I was wanting to crack up so bad because I saw when his teeth fell out. <laughs> I'm telling you, I, man, I don't even know if my dad, I, knew, I don't even know if I knew my dad had false teeth be honest with you, and to see them fall out, man, I was like, what? I was like, WTF? What the? F you know what I'm saying? I was like, oh, man, I ain't never seen nobody's teeth fall out while they're throwing up. Man, my dad was a character, man. It was, it was just, he was such a character, man, but he was also a very, very cool Dude, I, mean, I can tell you that my dad was a really, really cool dude. But it's just that when he got that oral stuff into him, you never know what was going to happen. But I can tell you this much. Those days at Fisherman's Wharf when he did drink were days that you didn't want to really be around with him because you didn't know what, how he was going to drive or, you know, or he get happy drunk. You ever, you ever know what a happy drunk is like? You know, they just forget about time. They forget about Everything that's going on around him. I mean, sometimes we'd be at the wharf till 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock after being there all day because he was on his oil. So he didn't know what time it was. You know, it was all good to him. <laughs> it was all good to him. You know, so anyways, 
we had some really good experiences at the wharf playing music we had a lot of great fans from around the world coming to see us but there was a time especially when i got to be like 14 years old and stuff me and my brothers happened on a back east thing with pops you know we went back there and played back east so that was kind of cool back in pa so i would say that was my first tour at 14 in the summertime when school was out but then you know my dad would get some gigs around the area you know but the thing that was not cool about it for us was that these were places that were like you know i would i would say they were dives man and that now see i'm not going to say that that's what my dad was really about it was just that it was a gig to him but it was also a gig with people of his age so that was kind of what he was looking for you know but we wanted to be doing the hipper things where kids our age were doing you know school dances and things like that and proms and stuff you know so we was kind of wanting to get into that and we'd be in these places man playing in these dives i mean you know you know those places where you walk in and you can smell the place i mean some of it you know some of it smells like pee you know and things like that and you know and it's dark and stuff like that and i'd be sitting up there playing drums while we're doing a set and i'd be looking around and i say god the women don't have no teeth I mean, I mean, I'm talking about. I've not never, I've never seen the most snaggletooth women in these places in my life, man. I mean, you know, you couldn't get excited, man, if you, if you, if you wanted to get excited. Soon as she opened her mouth and talked to you, it's like, oh, where are your teeth? You know, I mean, like, uh, I'm like, uh, have you ever heard of a dentist? I mean, these are the most buck tooth, snaggletooth, toothless women i've ever seen in these places man and it was such a turnoff and we were playing in these places like that and, and me and my brothers was like man pop's gotta hook us up with some better gigs than this you know but again like i said it, it was a cool experience you know because we were able to play and you know do live performing and stuff like that but we just got kind of burned out so if i fast forward you know to being like 16 years old i think for me, and well as my brothers, we just got burned out on the wharf thing, you know, playing on the street and that kind of stuff. It was no, uh, there was no opportunity for what we wanted to do. We wanted to be a band like we were all the time back east, you know, not perform on the street, you know. I mean, it was cool to a point, but around around that time, I guess me and my brothers were having conversations like, you know, look, man, you know, Pops is going to keep getting these kind of gigs you know, and then he's comfortable playing at the wharf, you know, but we're, we're going to have to, we're going to have to flip the switch here. So the brothers and I, we decided to start up our band to go performing, you know, clubs and stuff. So that's what we did. We went and started performing and just tell him, you know, we just don't feel like going to the wharf, you know, and, and it, it really upset him. You know, a matter of fact, I think my dad cried. I think he cried, you know, because we decided to you know, we just couldn't be stuck in that same thing, you know. And like I said, you know, and it wasn't anything like, you know, Pops was trying to keep us held back or nothing like that. It was nothing like that. I just don't think that he understood, you know, the generational thing, you know, the generation of young kids wanting to do their music in places that all the other peers that were playing music were. You know, they were doing proms and, like I said, high school dances and, some of these guys were playing Jack Tar Hotel in San Francisco. And, you know, so we ended up starting a band. 
and we ended up doing gigs around you know town and you know until we actually started getting really popular around you know playing uh from the school dance thing to the Jack Tar Hotel to the Presidio Army Base to Moffett Field to that ended up get, getting into the Holiday Inn in Belmont and Orphan Annie's and Frenchies and this is all down in San Mateo South Bay area because that was real things were you know that was where everything was hip it was the South Bay like not right now everything's North Bay but it was South Bay back then everything was happening down there you know at the Red Lion Hotel in San Jose. You know, Jolly Friars on Clement Street in San Francisco. I mean, countless, 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 countless gigs. And we got good, you know. And we were right up there with the rest of our peers that were playing. There was all kind of great bands out there. I mean, everybody was uh, gigging, you know. And uh, a lot of bands like ourselves, you know, we took their bands serious, man. They had choreography. You know, they had practiced themselves to, you know, have, you know, sh you know, a show. I mean, it was all about having a show back then. It wasn't like just standing there and, you know, people were getting uniforms. Like, we would get, you know, tailor-made uniforms and outfits, you know. And uh, we would go up there and, you know, and then oftentimes, you know, we, we wore crazy stuff too, you know. we If we wasn't wearing tailor-made suits, we were wearing leg warmers and leopard skin and all kind of stuff. And, you know, and, uh, you know, we just did it for the wow factor, you know. You got to have, we want to be different. You know, we were, we were all kind of crazy, I mean, crazy kind of outfits that you wouldn't even, you know, people came to see us play not only because we were a good band, but they came to just see what we were wearing for the night, <laughs> you know, because we, we got outrageous sometimes, really. You know, but we actually ended up picking up a booking agent, John Vinatieri, down in San Mateo. And that's where things really took off as far as traveling. You know, and we ended up pick, picking up a gig in Japan in 1980. And that was our first time going to Japan. And, and I can tell I can tell, let me tell you a little bit about that. I, I'm, I'm going to tell any band, if you go to Japan for the first time, you better have your SHIT together. <laughs> and I, I, I can just tell you that or, or else you're going to get sent home. And believe me, the Japanese booking agents over there don't have no problem sending you home. If you ain't hitting on nothing. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going I'm to send, send you out a warning. Because <laughs> I can tell you right now, me and my brothers landed this gig in Japan. So we go into immediate rehearsing for it. You know, at the same time, we were doing a lot of gigging around the neighborhoods and stuff like that in different clubs, San Francisco, and the East Bay sometimes, and mostly the South Bay. But we were rehearsing like crazy to get ready for this Japan thing. So we get over to Japan. Okay, we got this whole thing, and and plus, the Japanese promoters and the booking agents over there always wanted you to bring a female vocalist. So we brought this female vocalist with us, you know, with us. So we got the girl with us in Japan, and me and my brothers, and you know, and then we had another guy, Anthony Butler. We call him Bone, played the trombone. So it was you know the five of us plus a girl. So we get up there in our first night. Now this was six nights a week. Twice on Saturdays and one day off. So we get up in this club and we got our show down. Man. We got four or five fast songs and then we do a ballad, you know. Then we go on and pick it up. So the Japanese guys, after we get done, they was like, no, 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 no. We, we, we don't want no slow song. No slow song, no stop in between song. And I'm thinking like a drummer, 
man, because I ain't never done that before. So I'm thinking like, man, are you crazy? I mean, you know, and our sets, look, we were playing five sets a night, one hour each. Plus, our breaks were an hour each. So just count the hours, how, many time, how long you're going to be in the club. Count them. You're in that place for almost eight hours. We didn't get out of it until 4.30 in the morning. We started at 8. You know, so, so the guy says, you know, we don't want no slow songs whatsoever. We don't want no stops in between your song. When you start playing, play every song straight through with no stops in between. And I'm like, man. I, I, now, see, you got to remember something. We rehearsed a certain you know, a certain show, you know, now we got to change things. Now we got to, now we got to take out the song, the, the ballads. We got to take all that out. Now we got to figure out, you know, because we had endings and, you know, intricate endings and things like that, that we had practice. We got to throw all that away. Now we got to segue. And that honestly for me was the first time I ever heard the word segue, 1980. So we get up to the next night right into the next one and then I go one two three bang and we're on to the next song and I can tell you something man you talking about war out you talking about war out now now think about this now that was five sets a night one hour breaks in between six nights a week Twice on Saturday. Saturday, we would start at 2.30 in the afternoon to 4.30. We just did a two-hour show. Then we would come back at 8 o'clock and do the whole thing over again till 4.30 in the morning. So I can tell you, by week's end, all you could do on your day off is what? Sleep. <laughs> I'm talking about everybody was snoring. We were so tired, man. Now, now, now here's the other thing. Not only were we doing six nights a week, five sets a night, one hour breaks in between, we were also told, which was also written in our contract, that we had to rehearse four days a week <laughs> for two hours. And I can tell you right now, the, the Japanese promoters and booking agents and so forth, they sit in the club and watch you rehearse. There ain't going to be no thing about Hey, guys, yeah, we, we did rehearse today, you know, if they ask you. No, 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 no. no they're going to watch you and make sure that you sit there and rehearse. So four days a week we had to rehearse, plus do six nights a week gigging. So I can tell you right now, any band, now, you know, that could be different today. I mean, now that it's 2019, that could be totally different or it could be worse. I mean, it could be worse. I mean, so, but I can tell you my experience is that we were not prepared for that. I mean, I'm telling you, absolutely not. And I can pat myself on the back and my brothers on the back that we actually made it for three months with that kind of a schedule. Not to mention, you know, you're, you're talking about 120 degrees outside plus humidity. And we used to walk to the club and by the time we get to the club, we was already drenched in sweat. You know what I mean? So that's definitely something that you, uh, you want to, look out for if you if you do a tour in Japan as a cover band is what kind of understand up front what kind of situation you're going to be in when you get there here's the other situation when we were in Japan you know this was like the, the following year 
we ended up doing uh, uh, two cities, uh, Kumamoto and uh, Fukuoka. The, the first time we were there, we were in, in Nagoya at a place called the Penthouse. And then the second time we were at a place in Kumamoto, uh, I'm sorry, Nagoya, that was Nagoya too, I'll take that back. Nagoya and Kumamoto Fukuoka, you know, is where we ended up the second half of uh, the tour. <laughs> well, you know, that first half was really cool. It was, it was a place called the Un International, UN International. You know, and we was up there playing. And it was a very, very high clientele type of club. I mean, these people were buying their own bottles of whatever kind of liquor they bought. And then the club would actually hold the bottles for them until the next time. They had some kind of rack where they put your name on the bottle and put it in the rack. And then when, next time you come to the club, they would just go there and say, hey, that's my, you know, number, number, whatever the receipt or whatever they got to get their bottle. So it was a very... It was a very high-end club, and it was, it was great until the guy that owned the club, who was also the booking agent, decided to sell us off to another club. And we was, like, cool with where we were. Man, that, that, that Un-International was a great club. It was fun. There was two bands. There was a Filipino band that would, you know, come on before us, and then we'd go up. And it was great until this guy farmed us off to another club because this guy in – Kumamoto wasn't getting no clientele, wasn't getting a crowd. So they figured, well, well, we'll get the American act over there to draw a crowd for them. Now, mind you, like I told you, we wore suits and tailor-made stuff and everything. Now, un-international, man, we suited and booted, man, every night. So we get over to Kumamoto. First night, and then this club was like down underground. Dingy, dark. You know, and first couple of nights, you know, we suited up and booted up. And then we noticed that, man, ain't nobody coming to this place because it just seemed to be, you know, it was raunchy, man. Uh, and I'm thinking like, oh, this guy's using us to come over here, you know, to, to, you know, to, to help this guy get a crowd, man. But I can see why it's not happening because this is like some kind of, you know, this is like some kind of underground, you know, I don't know what we want to call it. But it wasn't nothing nice. So as the weeks went by, we slowly and progressively, <laughs> and I mean progressively, did away with the suits and all that, the suit and the booting. The suit and the booting, man, went out the window. <laughs> I'm telling you. I mean, I got to the point, you know, we used to wear our hair out when I had hair. <laughs> and I got, I mean, I was like braiding my hair and going on stage with my hair braided. I mean, it, it just got to be, you know, uh, you know, I don't think that I've ever felt that non-caring about my, you know, appearance on stage, <laughs> except when I was in that club. I mean, because we ended up wearing sweats, <laughs> shorts, <laughs> you know, man. We the whole band started going up in the same shit they was wearing all day, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And going to play, it got it just got to be that kind of a thing where it was just there, there was no inspiration to dress up and do that kind of stuff, man. Then we start. Making song. I mean, the thing, the whole thing just got sloppy. I mean, like I said, from from performing a great show that we had, you know, put together for the second time, we already knew that we didn't need to be doing a slow song, so we was already prepared the second time, and we had a really, you know, kick-ass show, man. But we got down in that Kumamoto club, you know, and, and everything just went bad.
It just went, man. Trust me, it just went bad. We got up there and we start. We started. We got way way away from our set list, and because there was nobody in there but pretty pretty much guys, Japanese men. You know, we just like, well, hey, let, let, all we got to do is just ride this thing out, man. Get paid and go home. Just just ride it out and go home. You know, we got a month and a half or whatever to do this thing to end up three months, and then let's go home. So we just started making songs up and all kinds of stuff, and we just it didn't even. You know, we never even stuck to the to, to the set list. We just made up anything. I think about ten songs. We made ten songs on stage, on the spot. You know, and then we were staying in these apartments, and the Filipino girls that were in the club. I was like, man, there's something wrong with this whole thing, man. Because it's like these girls were hired to do a dance routine. They would go up between our break. They would do a little dance routine, and then next thing you know, while we're playing, we see them sitting on guys' laps and guys fondling. You know, they would be fondling the girls and all this kind of stuff like that. And I was like, what is going on? What, what kind of club is this we're in? Because these girls were supposed to be dancing. So anyways, we were staying in this apartment, and so were the girls. And one day, one of the girls comes and knocks on my door. And she's crying, man. She's crying, I mean, a, a river of tears, man. She's crying a river of tears. And I said, what's wrong? What's, wrong? what's going on? What's going on? She said, I want, you, I want you to come over and look at our contract. I said, what's wrong with your contract? We, 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 please come and look at it for us because we don't understand. We don't understand what, 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 what we're really supposed to do. So I go over to their apartment girl pulls out this contract i'm reading this contract and it says the girls are supposed to do five 30 minute sets with 20 minute breaks in between well at the club they were only doing one what seemed to be like 10 minute little dance routine with some music and then the rest of that time they was over there on laps and sitting on the japanese guys laps and you know, the guys were grabbing on them and all kind of, you know, touching them and all this other kind of stuff. And the girls were sick of it. And they were only getting $500 a month for, there was, I believe it was five girls, if I can recall. And they were getting $500 a month. And because they were from the Philippines, that might have been a lot of money for them. But that was like certainly, you know, that was certainly just, uh, you know, un unfathomable. <laughs> to, to believe that you're in a place for a month and only you, all you get is $500 and then you, you got to sit there and get groped and everything all night. So I read this contract and I told the girl, I said, no, nah, man. I said, no, nah. you know what? I said, what you guys are doing, no, nah, that's, not, that's not cool. I said, you tell them that you no longer want to, you know, do this whole thing. You want to stick to the contract the way the contract signed or else you're going to go home. And then the girl starts crying and said, well, they took our passports. We don't have, we don't have our passports. I was like, oh, no. She said, and, and, you know, and we're, we're sick and tired of eating fish and chicken every day. They, you know, because you know, when you play with Japan, now, don't get me wrong. Japan's a beautiful place. I love Japan. I loved performing. But I do know that there's some shady stuff that goes on. I'm just, I'm just keeping it real. You know? And we even had something shady. I'm going to get to that. So 
the girl saying, you know, we're so sick and tired of eating fish and chicken every day. They give us, you know, because like I said, when you play over there, they give you a per diem. For us, it was $50 a piece per day. Plus, we would get the chicken and rice, you know, or fish and chicken. So I knew what they were talking about. But they never got a per diem that, that was about money. They didn't get no money. Whoever from the club would deliver this sack of rice and, and then this chicken fish. I don't think they even got the chicken. They just got the fish. So I said, man, you're in all kind of bad, you know, with, with these guys. They got your passport and stuff. I said, basically, you can't leave. And I mean, I said, you should have never, never, ever gave them your passports. I said, I know you might not have understood or known better or whatever. I said, but I, f I feel really sorry for you. There's not, you know, only thing I can tell you is that you should go to, you know, to the embassy or something like that and let, let them know what's going on. Because, you know, I mean, it's not right for you guys to go over there and, and get groped and stuff like that. You go up there and, you know, they think that you're fulfilling a contract by letting you do 10 minutes or something on the stage dancing. Then, then they got you out there, you know, having to be groped and, and, and all these different kinds of things. So it was really a sad situation for the girls. Now, on the other hand, me and the boys, we get over to this club in Kumamoto, like I told you. And, man, I'm like, the owner of the club, true story now, check this out. The owner of the club was getting angry at us, very, very angry at us. And one night, you know, he started saying, you, you, you had to call me master. You, you call me master. You ever go, we were like, man, we ain't calling you no master. What are you, what are you talking about? You had to call me master. Call, call me master. We we're like, man, this, this dude crazy. I mean, where, where is he getting this thing from, you know? And, and this was going on for several nights, and we just refused to call him master. We were calling him the name that he was in Japanese. You know, so thinking that his name in Japanese is what we knew it to be, that's what we would call him. But for some reason, he felt that we needed to not call him the Japanese name that he was given, <laughs> but we need to be calling him master. Really, true story. And I mean, so one night we got really angry with this dude because he kept coming at us man you call me master you, we, we, when you talk to me call me master when you talk to me call me master man so we said man we gotta have a we gotta have a meeting with this dude <laughs> we gotta sit down and have a real, real real good talk we gotta have a real good talk with this guy so we arranged to have a meeting with him and several of his employees that worked with him that were kind of in cahoots with him about his anger about us not calling him master so we sit in this room and went at this round table in the back office back there and we're saying, look, let, let, let's get something straight here, okay? We're going we're to straighten this out right now. We don't even call our own father master or anybody else for that fact, so why would we need to call you master, you know? And then we were saying, look, you know what? Even for the money that you're paying us, we said, you know, we said you're only paying us I think it was like something like $20,000 a week or something like that we're getting. You know, I mean, I, I can tell you this. In Japan, you make some good money playing the clubs. I, I, I can tell you that. 
you know, you make some good money. I, I was making, I think the first time we went to Japan was 2800 a week by myself per man. So the money was good. Back in the 80s, now that was, some, that was a lot of money. So, but I think we were getting like 20000 This guy booked us that owned the other club. Now, now keep in mind, we were booked to go to this other club in Kumamoto, Fukuoka, by the owner of the Uninternational, who was also a booking agent. So, so now keep that in mind. So we get in this roundtable discussion, and we tell this dude, man, you ain't even paying us but like $20,000 a week. And he's like, what? What do, what do you mean, 20000 a week? No, I pay you, I, I pay you, uh, you know, I, I pay you uh, $48,000 a week. And we're like, what? You, you, wait, we're like, say it again? Say that again? You, you said you pay what? I pay you 48000 a week. Uh, we was like, whoa. That's, that's something new. That's, some, that's something new. We didn't know about. That's something new. We know we're getting twenty thousand a week, but where's the extra uh, twenty-eight thousand dollars going to? We was like, "Oh, hold up, hold up, just hold on, hold on. Something ain't cracking right here." So now we got two problems. We got one over here calling himself like some master or something that he wants to be called, and then on the other hand, you know, on the other tip. This, this owner over here at this other club, now we get it. Now we see what you actually did is that you sold us out for more money rather than being at your club where you have to pay us out of your pocket. Now you're getting a booking agent fee. See what I'm saying? But under undercover, though, see, this wasn't something that we were supposed to find out. So thank God this master thing came up because we would have never known that this guy was getting $28,000 uh, on top of, you know, the 20000 we were getting. So we said, you know what? You get that guy on the phone right now. Because we told this guy who wanted to be called master, he said, no, 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 no. You are, you're, not, you're not paying us twenty eight, uh, uh, you know, $48,000. Nah, you ain't giving it. No, we ain't getting no for. We don't know nothing about no $48,000. And we were like, even if we did get $48,000, we still wouldn't call you master. But here's, here's the problem we got. You get on the phone and you call that guy over at the other club right now and you tell him to get over here because at, at this point in time, right now, as we sit here, we're not striking one note until we get to the end of this thing here. And you get that man on the phone right now and get him down. I don't care if he has to fly over here or whatever, however he has to get her. You get on the phone and tell him at this point right now, the band is not going to play no music Nothing until you get over here and we handle this other mess. Now, mind you that this guy that owned the other club wanted us to go, you know, because our contract ended up in August of that year, 81. And he offered us to go to China from there for three more months. And we was like, hey, man, we're already over here in the Orient. So why not? I mean, it'd just be six months away from home. So what? And the money's good. So we told the owner, we say, yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. You know, once we finish this thing over here at this other city that you're taking, you know, and, and hiring us out for, then we'll, we'll go from there and go straight over to China and do three months. So we was like all ready to go until the mess came up. 
So anyways, this owner, like two days later, flies in. And, and mind you, we hadn't gone back to play at all. We, we just told him we, we're not playing nothing. We're just going to lay back and kick back and do our thing until we have this guy come in town. We can sit down and get this thing hammered out. So the guy comes in town. We go back to the round table meeting room in the back. And we say, hey, man, you know, what, what's this thing about getting all this extra money, you know, that, that you're getting, you know, that you're not telling us about? We don't, we don't know nothing about that. We haven't heard anything about it. All we know is that you want us to book this gig through you for a friend of yours to help him out, you know, to try to get his club, you know, patrons, you know, up, get his numbers up. Now, we didn't know that you was going to sidetrack us with some, you know, some, some, you know, some uh, slick and sly move that you did. So here's the deal, okay? You know, we're telling you right now that you're going to have to, you're going to, have to give us extra money to finish out this thing, and we want you to book when you get back, we want you to book our airline tickets to go home in August. We're not going to China because you're a crook, man. And we're not going to do that. So you get some extra money on, on top of what we're, we're finishing up here until August. And then we're out of here. And that's how that ended, man. We, 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 we got on a plane and went home. And I would have really liked that going to China since we was already over there. But that, was, uh, that wasn't to be. That wasn't to happen. But thank God that this whole master thing came up. Because that's how we found out that we're getting, we're getting burned on the money. So watch out for that, bands that go over there. Just make sure you look at your money stuff and uh, you don't get, you know, sold off to another club without looking at the details and seeing what's happening behind it. Now, the other funny thing that's in Japan is that my brother Ron, well, I got, an, I got a couple funny stories about Japan. And this is all related with the music. All this stuff was happening while we were on tour performing, okay? So Ron, I don't know, you know, he had these contact lenses in his eyes. But Ron used to wear glass contact lenses. And he would never take them out. <laughs> Excuse me. He would never take them out. So one night he goes to sleep in his, con in his contact lenses. And he wakes up and he had, his corners were scratched to hell. I mean, scratched to hell. So we take him to the doctors because his, his eyes are burning up and everything else like that. We take him to the doctor's office and they did whatever they did with him back there. Then they put two patches on his eyes and he couldn't take them off for 24 hours. <laughs> we felt so bad for our brother, Ron. We felt, we felt so bad for him because... I mean, you know, that's the closest you can feel like being a blind man, really. That's, that's the closest you can feel. And because all this happened in the morning, you know, we had the whole rest of the day. You know, we got him to a doctor's in the morning, got him seen, got him handled, and then he's got these patches on his eyes. And poor Ron, you know, everybody wanted to go out and do things, you know. I mean, it's like now we got this, you know, he was handicapped. I mean, really. But I know he wanted to go out and do things with us. So here we are. <laughs> we got to walk around town with him holding, this, holding one of our arms. <laughs> I was like, man, I was like, you know, 
I mean, poor Ron. I mean, like, the man's blind the whole day. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that had to be uncomfortable. I don't know if I could have handled that. 24 hours with patches on your eyes, and you're walking around Japan with, you know, Japan's got millions of people, and we got to ditch and dodge people and stuff like that while he's holding our arm. And he'd be like, <laughs> we, we, we'd, be like we'd be like this. Oh, man, that's cool. Man, that looks cool. He's like, what is it? What, what do you see? What, 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 what was that? What? I mean, this went on all day. What, what you looking at? What you see? I was like that. I was like we had to narrate everything that we did, but he, he couldn't see nothing, man. I mean, I felt so bad for Ron, and I was like, man, well, you know what? Now from now on, you better get you some soft contact lenses, man. You know what I'm saying? Now the other crazy thing that happened in Japan was on me. I mean, seriously, man, you're not gonna believe this. Now, see, I had this thing about learning Japanese. You know, I just wanted to be able to speak some. You know, of the language, and you know, I didn't have to have you know nothing be fluent, but just enough to know what I was talking about. So we're playing in the club, you know, the same club in Nagoya, the penthouse, and I met this Japanese guy and his two sisters. They were a family, and on my breaks, you know, we have an hour break, so I had nothing else to do but you know, sit back and talk with people. So this family of brother and two sisters. Sitting at a table on each of my breaks, we're trying to teach each other, you know, Japanese and English, back and forth. So we, we decided that the best way to do it, since it's loud in the club and I got to keep getting them to go play and all that kind of stuff, that we go to my hotel room. And we'll learn, you know, and teach each other, you know, English and Japanese. So I was like, cool. Man, you know, you can't get it no better than that. You got, you know, somebody from Japan, you know that's got the real language and somebody from America that's got the real language, best way to learn, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. So anyways, we get done playing a gig and, you know, I start walking down the street and they're walking with me and, and the guy's saying, no, 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 well, I have a car. I, I was like, oh, and I understood, you know, it was broken up, but I understood what he was saying. He was trying to tell me that he has a car and that we don't need to walk. So I'm like, cool, you know, so, we, we turn around and we go back up the street and we get to this car and I'm looking at it and I'm saying, what the hell is this? I mean, this thing looked like a Converse tennis shoe. I mean, I'm telling you, man, man, I'm talking about I was taller than the car. And I'm saying, I'm supposed to get in this thing? You know, but, you know, I mean, I was appreciative of the ride and all. Don't get me wrong, but I'm like saying this thing actually looked like a tennis shoe. I'm serious, a white Converse tennis shoe. Man, I'm telling you. And I was like, okay, you know, now you know they, they drive on the right side, you know, and then the passengers on the left side, you know, up front. So the the guy opens up the door and he lifts the seat forward for me to get in. I'm, I'm trying to squeeze in, man. Oh, 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 oh. I mean, I finally get in that seat. Man, I noticed, I look up and I said, dang, man, my head's touching the roof. I mean, it was that small back to in this car. So... You got the driver in front of me on the right side and then the sister next to me on the left and the other sister and the passenger on the front left in this tennis shoe, right? And I'm saying, well, you know, all right, you know, so, you know, this ain't that far down the road to the hotel, so we ain't going to be in it too long. But, man, I, I'm cramped up in the back of this thing, man. So what I forgot in that if you've ever been to Japan, you'll know that they drive crazy. I mean, they are ridiculously crazy drivers. 
I, I'm no lie. You know, if you've ever been there, you'll know what I'm talking about. They fly down the street. So, but I didn't think about that because I figured, well, you know, I look like I'm with a sensible bunch until the guy pulls out and <laughs> and this little tennis shoe. I'm like, oh, whoa, oh, I like hold your horse, cowboy. Hold your house. I mean, your horse. Hold your horse, cowboy. Slow down. I'm like, good God, what man, where you going? I mean, flying down the street, man. And I'm like, oh man, this is uh, this this is gonna be some ride. But still, I'm thinking it ain't, ain't that far down the road to the hotel. So I had to hang in, you know, and uh, see where this goes. So we're driving down the street, flying down the street. All of a sudden, this guy goes through a red light. I'm like, what the devil? And all of a sudden, he goes through a red light, and this car is coming through the intersection and almost sideswipe on the sister and the passengers, you know, the side on the left side. Almost ran into and did a T-bone. And so, you know, we come to a screeching halt. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, this is crazy. So this guy gets out of his car. And he comes over to the driver of the car that I'm in. And they're speaking Japanese. You know, Now, remember, I don't know what they're saying. I can't even pick out a word. You know, I used to be able to, you know, hear a word here and like that Coco and See my sand and those kind of things. I didn't hear none of that. I heard. And I'm like, I'm like, what in the world are they talking about? And all of a sudden, boom, the guy outside punches the driver in the car that I'm in, punches him in the face, through, you know, because he had the window rolled down because they're talking. He punches him in the face. I'm like, oh, snap. Uh-oh, something ain't right here, boy. This guy's mad at whatever they were saying, you know, didn't sit too well with the guy standing outside. So the guy that's driving in the car that I'm in, the tennis shoe, takes off. <laughs> takes off. And I, I was like, oh, man. And I just kind of oh, turn around and squeeze around and look. I'm tight in the back seat, but I can try to turn and I look to my left and back. And I see this guy run and jump in his car. And all of a sudden, he starts following us. I mean, he's flying down the street right behind us. And I was like, oh, no. I'm like, oh, no, you got, you got to be kidding me, man. Am I in this kind of a situation? I didn't sign up for this. I just want to learn some Japanese. This, this is something different here. So this guy's flying behind us, and we're flying down the street. We're screeching tires and all kind of stuff. And if you've ever been to Japan, you know that some streets are wide and some streets are very narrow. Well, we turned down some of these narrow streets. The guy's right behind us, man. I'm I'm looking behind me, and I'm like, oh man, this is like this is a this is a seriously, uh, you know, a serious chase down going here, and something that guy's really pissed off, man. You know, so I'm so I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking at the same time, I'm like, man, I got to get out of this car some kind of way, because this thing here, I'm like, I got no room, I can't move, you know, I can hardly turn around and look behind me, my head's touching the roof. And I'm like, man, I'm in a tennis shoe here. So we're driving. Oh. Then we turn down this other narrow street. Now this guy's still behind us. I'm like, we can't shake this guy. Oh my goodness, we cannot shake this guy. Now all of a sudden, we go down a narrow street. And if you know, Japan, you know, the, you know, in, in Japan, the streets that are narrow are even made more narrow with the cars parked. And we turn down the street, screeching tire. We turn down the street, and all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. Man, we're hitting parked cars all up inside down the street. Up and down the street, we're tearing cars. We're just tearing cars up. And I'm thinking to myself, I said, oh, man, this dude, whenever this is over, 
this dude's going to be some real trouble. He's just tearing up cars, trying to get away from this fool that's behind us. And this guy's still behind us. We're tearing up, tearing up cars. Boom. 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 Here goes the door of a car. Boom. Boom. Here goes the fender. Okay. Here goes the sidewall. Boom. Boom. I'm like saying, man. And you know what it feels like when you hit cars and you're doing like 40 or 50 miles an hour down the street. It ain't no fun. Tell me, especially in a tennis shoe like that. So we get out of that street and we didn't tore up about 10 cars. And all of a sudden we get on the street called Shinsake. Now I remember that because that's the street that we were on. You know, staying at the hotel, Shinsaki. Man, and Shinsaki's got about eight lanes. So ah, we go to get on Shinsaki, and the guy behind us, ah, he's behind us. Oh, oh, now we're back up to 60, 70 miles an hour. Oh, and all of a sudden, I look in front of the window, and I was like, oh, my God. There's nothing but a sea of red lights. What are we going to do now? Oh, we're flying. Ah. Well, this guy's creative that's driving the car. Know what he does? He gets up on the sidewalk. Oh my goodness! I said, "You can't! Are you kidding me? You, you're gonna drive on the sidewalk?" We jump up on the on the curb. We're on the sidewalk now. I look behind me. The idiot behind me. He gets on the sidewalk too. Now we got two two cars driving down the sidewalk. People are jumping out of the way, man, like a movie. I mean, you should see them scattering, they're jumping off in the street like they're flying. Jumping. There's noodle stands. Boom, 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 all in the street. There's signs and store signs. Boom. We're out. I was like, man, this looked like. Some dragnet shit or something. I'm like, man, this is for real. But and but I'm in the scene for real, and I don't want to be in the scene. You know what I mean? But I'm back here stuck because I can't get out because it's only two doors. You know, so boom, 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 people jumping out of the way. Everybody jumping. It's like it's some kind of movie. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 boom. All of a sudden, we get in the clearing. And he jumps off the sidewalk. Boom, boom, boom. The other car jumps off the sidewalk. Boom, boom, boom. Back on the, we're back on the street again. Oh, we're back on Shinsake. We got around all this traffic, right? I'll come. I mean, the traffic stops again. All of a sudden, the driver in my car says, well, we're going to turn left. <laughs> and it's it. So all of a sudden, he turns left. And all of a sudden, boom. We run right into a taxi cab. Right in the back of it. Rear end. So the taxi cab, he's mad. He jumps out. And the car, the guy in the car behind us, boom, he comes to a stop, screeching, stop. He jumps out of the car. He grabs the door of the car that I'm in, yanks it open, snatches the guy that was driving the car that I'm in, yanks him out of the car and stuff like that. Then he had enough nerve. Now, you know what he had the nerve to do? Now, you got to understand something. At this point in time, I'm, I'm about to catch a case. You know, you know what I'm saying? You, you got to know I'm about to catch a case. You know, I'm about to I'm about to do a 5150 ballistic catching the case here. I'm pissed off. Man, I done been in a car that's been driving down, you know, roads doing 60, 70 miles an hour. I've been in alleys and stuff that are narrow with cars being banged up and I'm I'm feeling the impact and everything. We're screeching tires. Oh, don't let me forget that some of those little streets, I'm thinking that we got rid of the guy behind us because I can hear him screeching tires behind us, but we lost him for some reason. And all of a sudden I'm thinking we're in the clear, and all of a sudden, <laughs> Uh, look, and, and, and there's all kind of hysteria. You know, I don't even understand what they're saying. Remember, the, 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 the family, they're in there hollering and carrying on and stuff. And I don't know what the hell they're saying. I'm like, I don't know what they're saying. And all of a sudden, the car stalls. And I'm like, I mean, you got to be kidding me. And I can hear this car because we lost them for a minute. I can hear this car still coming. And this car that we're in is like, mm -hmm. As soon as this guy, I swear, as soon as he comes around the corner, I can see the headlights because this was at night. 
Okay, like, you know, 3 in the morning or something like that, 4.30 or whatever whatever time it was that we got off of the gig, 4.30 to 5 o'clock, something like that. But it was dark. But I could see the headlights coming from a distance. I'm like, oh, man, please, car, start, please. We're, boom, it's our, the car fires up, and boom, we're gone. I said, this has got to be the craziest movie I've been in. And I ain't even getting paid for it. So anyways, cut back to the taxi cab. The guy snatches the dude out of the car, man. And I'm like saying, uh-oh, what's he going to do? So he flips the seat over, and he goes to reaching for me. And I was like, oh, no, no, no. I said, I, I, I reared back my fist, and I said, come on, fool. Come on. I said, you, you come on. You come on touch me. I'm about to go 51-50 on you, dude. I said, you come on. And, and, and you know how Japanese, they have this way of waving their hand in front of the nose when they say no. He said, oh, no, 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 I, I saw you. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I said, I said you, man, you better get out of the way because I'm, I'm about to catch a case with you. So, so you know, because you know, I'm about to go ballistic here after what i just been through. So I jump out the car, and I hear the sirens. I said, oh, I think it's time for me to check out of here. You know what I'm saying? It's time for me not to be seen because guess what? I don't have my passport with me. I don't know where I'm at. I got in some craziness, man, with these people hitting cars and stuff, and I happen to be in a car. Best thing for me to do. Now, if you know anything about Japan, there's millions of people and a sea of black hair. And I said, well, I guess I'm just going to mix myself up in all this black hair and just get to walking on down the street and, and beat the cops before they get here. And I don't know where I'm going, but I'll figure it out. And lo and behold, I'm walking down the street, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm going the right direction because I see all kind of noodle stands and everything in the street and, and all kind of signs and everything. I think, I, yeah, I think I'm going the right direction, <laughs> seriously, because there was stuff scattered everywhere. So I finally get down to Shinsaki. That's the street that the hotel that we stayed in was on. So now I said, oh, some familiar ground, thank God. So I'm walking down, and I finally see the hotel. I said, oh, my God, I'm going the right way. I found it somehow. I found it because I know we passed the hotel when we were driving down Shinsake with all those eight lanes and decided to get up on the sidewalk. So I knew the look of the hotel. So I go to the hotel and I get back in there and who did I see when I get upstairs in the hotel? Jeff. And Jeff's sitting up there saying, Les, man, was that you that I saw in a car that was driving all down the street all crazy and stuff like that? I said, yeah, that was me. I said, man, did you see me? He said, man, I thought that was you back. I thought I saw your head. <laughs> so I was like, man, man, that was such crazy. I, then I had to tell him the story. And he couldn't believe it. I was like, man, I don't even know. If I would have if if waited for the cops to come, I might have been in some jail somewhere over there. Nobody would even know where to find me. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I had the frame of mind to just leave. But I'm telling you, man, that was crazy. That was something like out of the movies, man. I mean, some craziness out of movies. And my brother saw me passing passing the hotel with this guy following us and chasing us and carrying on. That's, that's crazy. So, hey, you know, but either way you look at it, we've had a lot of fun playing music. We had a lot of wild, crazy stories, some good, some bad, you know. We just got a lot of things, and it all brings it back to everything that has happened in my life was all related around performing and playing music, and it's been beautiful to travel, and, and we've had some fun times and stuff like that. And, hey, I hope you enjoyed this story. Hey, don't forget to tell everybody to subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Les Edwin Show. Tell them to tell their friends and so forth and so on to subscribe to my channel so you can check out all my podcasts that I'm going to be doing. going to be some really cool things. I'm going to try to get some guests 
you know, and get my family on here. We're going to have a lot of fun. So you guys get a chance to hear, you know, the, the, the real scoop of what's been going on all these years in the music business. You know, so make sure you stay tuned for the next podcast coming after this one. And I hope you guys a wonderful, wonderful day. Whatever you're doing, stay tuned for the next one. And once again, this was brought to you by SubToYou.com. If you ever need a sub musician or want to join the band, just log on to SubToYou, S-U-B, number two, Y-O-U.com, SubToYou.com, and go find you a sub musician or want to even start a band. Or if you're looking to be hired or start a band, you can sign up. It's free. And if you want to have your profile picture be you on an instrument, it's only $1.99. And everything else is free. You can search, sign up, contact musicians free. So make sure you check it out, sub to you.com, and you can find yourself a great musician there. All right, we'll, we'll check you out in the next podcast. Hope you had fun on this one as much as I had fun doing the podcast for you. So once again, this is Les Edwins from the Les Edwins Show. We'll see you on the next podcast. Peace. <laughs>